Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to a new episode of Talking France, a podcast by the local for anyone interested in what's going on in France. And right now, there's a lot going on in France. For example, an almighty political crisis over President Emmanuel Macron's contentious reform to raise the pension age from 62 to 64. We'll have all the latest on how the battle is playing out, including on the streets where hundreds of protests, some violent, have taken place in recent days. We'll look at what's going to happen next and what it all means for the King of France himself. Sorry, the President of France, Emmanuel Macron. He gave his first real interview on pensions reform this week. We'll also try to answer a question many readers are asking right now. Do I need to cancel my trip to France because of the crisis? And away from strikes and protests, we'll also look at what a new survey revealed about why foreign residents find France a difficult country to settle in. What's hard to master, the language or the paperwork? Paris Olympics organisers are looking for tens of thousands of volunteers for the 2024 Games. We'll explain how you could qualify. And finally, stay tuned to the end to find out some useful tips for how you can avoid offending French people. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined this week by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and the man who can decode French politics for us, John Litchfield. As ever, we always start with what are we talking about in France this week? Now, France, as I said, is in the middle of a political crisis, Jen. And it's all related to Emmanuel Macron's pension reform. It's been an eventful few days in the French parliament. Bring us up to date. So the first thing we should establish is that on Monday night, France's prime minister, Elizabeth Bourne, survived two votes of no confidence. The motions of no confidence were put forward after the PM used Article 49.3 on Thursday of last week. Now, as a reminder, Article 49.3 is a tool that allows the French government to push through a bill without parliamentary support. Using 49.3 led to widespread anger. Members of parliament denounced the move as undemocratic, and on the night of, people took to the streets and protested across France. In response, two motions of no confidence were filed. One was supported by multiple parties, and the other was by Marine Le Pen's far-right party, the Rassemblement National. The Le Pen party's motion was easily defeated, but it really did come down to the wire with the first vote of no confidence that was supported by multiple parties. Ultimately, it was rejected after failing to get the 287 necessary votes to topple the government. It was just nine votes short. So now we can technically say that pension reform has passed, subject to the approval of France's Constitutional Council, and that the Macron government has survived. And Jen, the events in the French Parliament has naturally had an impact on events out on the streets in France. Where are we with protests, strikes, garbage pileups, etc.? So after the votes of no confidence failed, several opposition leaders like hard-left leader Jean-Luc Mélenchon have encouraged more spontaneous actions and protests. Mélenchon said that now it's up to the people to demonstrate their vote of no confidence. On Monday night after the votes, some of the protests were especially tense. There were some violent clashes between police and protesters, and over 250 arrests were made across France. And then there have been smaller, more sporadic protest actions that have continued throughout this week. And Thursday is set to be the latest day of mass strikes impacting planes, trains, schools, and local public transport systems. 
As for garbage pileups, the government has used its strike-breaking powers to force waste collectors back to work. But as of Tuesday, there were still around 9,000 tons of garbage on the streets of Paris. And the mayor of Paris's 9th arrondissement estimated that it could take up to two weeks to clear it all. Now is a good time to bring in politics expert John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. I asked John how he thinks things will play out in the next few days and weeks in France. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to know. In some ways, it seems to be gaining strength, but uh, you know, I have a sense that there is also a kind of big part of the country, including the union support, which kind of wants things to go back to normal now. But the, the fact that this law has gone through, even by this slightly abrupt method of u- using the special powers to push it through without a vote, means that it takes away, uh, you know, obviously, it's, I think, angered a lot of people, but I think it will also introduce a sort of atmosphere of resignation amongst many people as well. So I suspect it's going to go on for quite a while. I mean, the, the big marches and strikes today, I think, will be very well supported. But the question then for the unions, as has been all along, has said, is going to be, OK, now what? Are they going to have continuous strikes in the railways and, and in the rubbish collecting uh, sectors? Uh, oil sector is beginning a bit, a bit of a problem, or will that begin to fade away? Essentially, what Macron tried to do yesterday, and especially by giving his interview to the one o'clock TV news as the two main o'clock TV newses, which are listened to or watched mostly by a kind of rather conservative, rural, elderly France, is to appeal to the sort of core nation, which may be angry about pension reform in a way, but certainly doesn't want the country to be disrupted for months. Now, moving on, or moving on slightly, who are we talking about in France this week? We shouldn't really look any further than the president himself, Emmanuel Macron. He's at the centre of this reform and the focus of anger on the streets. He finally made an appearance this week in front of the nation. He did a 35-minute live interview with two journalists on Wednesday. Emma, what did he have to say? Well, as expected, we didn't get any new announcements in the interview. There was certainly no withdrawing of the pension reform, uh, nothing related to the government. Instead, what it was is what's known in France as pédagogy, which is sort of teaching or explanation, and what some of Macron's more unkind critics refer to as Macron's blaming. Basically, he said he was pushing ahead with the reform, he thinks it's necessary for the country, and that his only regret was that he hasn't managed to convince the population of its necessity. And he also said he wanted to get it done by the end of the year, which is roughly in line with the original plan to start implementing it from September. So there were no surprises in this interview. But he did give a very clear and very convincing explanation of why pension reform is needed. It was honestly the best explanation of the whole policy that I've heard so far. And he said that he kind of regretted keeping himself in the background for the debate rather than making this case more strongly, as he did in this interview, I think it's fair to say. But I am always quite impressed when I see Macron do these like big in-depth interviews that, you know, he can talk very fluently in a lot of detail about these policies. Whether you agree with him or not, he's certainly over his brief, you could say. Mm, he does do the pedagogy very well. Well, and like you say, we all thought the same. Where's he been for the last few weeks, you know, when he gives a good, strong explanation like that? But Emma, we should mention this is a reform of huge importance for Macron himself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of quite personal for him that this is one of his flagship policies. He made it part of his election campaign back in 2022. And it's really part of this whole package of reforms that he believes France needs in order to modernise and compete in the modern world. And in this interview, he kind of really put pension reform into the context of his overall vision for sort of changing and modernizing France. So during his first term, we saw that he changed a lot of things around employment law, business startups in order to make French industry more competitive. And now in his second term, he's looking at balancing the books um, and the pension system is one reason that France is in the red. He talked a lot about the reindustrialisation of France, the reindustrialising or rebuilding of French industry. 
but through building French businesses for a new age, so carbon neutral tech, startups, this kind of thing, with the ultimate goal of full employment. And this is very much the, the Macron vision laid out here. Yes, now this vision, however, has had an impact on his popularity ratings, uh, according to the polls. One quote that stood out for me in Macron's interview was that he said, given a choice between opinion polls in the short term and the general interest of the country, I choose the general interest of the country. He seems like he's kind of taken a personal responsibility for this crisis. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as we said, it is very much, it is one of his reforms. But I think his opponents have made it quite personal too, that political etiquette in France dictates that it's the Prime Minister rather than the President who has the responsibility of taking legislation through Parliament. So that's why we've seen Elizabeth Bourne, the Prime Minister, be a lot more prominent in these debates. But even without that, his opponents very much equate this to a a Macron law. And if you either listen to his political opponents or just take a look at some of the signs on demos, it's Macron's name that you will see and hear. And in recent days, they've even been talking about Macron as le roi, the, the king. I don't think anyone needs to be a history graduate to remember what France did to its king. Indeed. Uh, this is another good point to bring back. John Litchfield, who joins us again on the line from Normandy. I asked John what this crisis and this reform means for Emmanuel Macron and the rest of his presidential term and indeed the next presidential election. Yes, again, um, I, I think in some ways I compare this to the Gilets Jaunes movement at the beginning of his first term, which he managed to recover from pretty well. I, I, I wonder whether he's going to be able to recover from this. Partly he doesn't have a majority in Parliament, which is what's caused this crisis, and therefore it's going to be very difficult anyway for him to get legislation through, as we've seen. What he was trying to do yesterday was to sort of suggest that there was another agenda that could now be pushed, which would have a lot of goodies in for the trade unions, like some new way of sharing value, of a very rich and successful companies sharing their value with their workers rather than just using it to put up salaries of, of the top uh, executives and, and buy back their own shares. Something that should appeal to the unions, but are the unions ready to discuss with him about that? He also gave a sort of endorsement to Elizabeth Bourne but it seemed, uh, to continue as Prime Minister, but it seemed to me a rather weak and conditional one. He suggested he wanted her to try and find a, a sort of wider majority, which they tried it already after failing to get a majority, a full majority in the Parliament last uh, June and failed. The implication of that to me was that she'd be given the chance to do that. And if she doesn't, then there will be another prime minister asked to do it. That's my interpretation. I have no information on that. But I suspect that Elizabeth Bourne will not last out this year anyway, probably not last till the summer. So he may, but he didn't announce anything dramatic like that. But he, I think, was playing for time, partly offering the opportunity of moving forward in in the uh, interest of the country if what if and when the, the the violence and the disruption ends appealing as i say to sort of the core of the country that wants their lives to go on normally even if they're angry with pension reform hoping to outlast the unions, uh, as has been the case all along. And now there is no, at what point do the unions de- declare themselves to to finish their action or, or the protesters declare themselves to finish their action? I think once it goes to the, the, the Conseil Constitutionnel, there's sort of part of what is like a Supreme Court or part of a Supreme Court in France that has to declare whether this law is constitutional. That could happen in, in a couple of weeks. If that gets through there, it may not in full, but if it gets through there, I have a feeling that this thing will, you know, leave a kind of dark cloud behind it, but will begin to fade. John, looking even further ahead, is there a worry now, uh, given what's happened with this reform and in particular, the use of pushing it through with the 49.3 method 
without the usual parliamentary vote. Is there a worry that this will open the doors for someone like Marine Le Pen at the next presidential election? Of course, that has to be a worry. If you look at France, France is a country that very rarely re-elects its leaders. I mean, Macron was the first president to be re-elected for many years. Was it 20 years last time? And it's a country that likes to throw out its leaders every time. So when it comes to 2027, what are the options? The centre-left, completely scattered or become very radicalised, or the far right. The centre would be a continuation of the same, even if Macron cannot run himself again. So, you know, they're running out of options. They've kind of tried everything, really. And therefore, you know, at some point, maybe the country will decide to, to throw itself in with Marine Le Pen. Personally, I've always doubted it. I still don't think it's likely. It depends a lot on what happens now in the next three or four years. She has a habit, I think, also of proving herself to be incompetent and not really being able to kind of command the confidence of the country in her proposals. It's been interesting that she's really been, in a sense, just sort of smirking on the sidelines of this whole debate on pensions. She's not offered any alternative suggestions herself. The, the, the Rassemblement National Deputies, all 88 of them, have scarcely spoken in the debates that there have been. So she's waiting her time, hoping that this will all play in, in her favour. Uh, I'm personally convinced, finally, that the country won't be doing anything quite as silly as to elect Marine Le Pen president. But uh, yeah, I think this sense that everything has now been tried, Macron promised revolution of a kind of quiet kind hasn't really worked. That what, what are the alternatives? Maybe, you know, the country that wants to change every time will turn to Marine Le Pen because she's the only thing they've not tried. John, thanks again for joining us on the line from Normandy. Now, where in France are we talking about this week? Well, the whole of the country, really, because we're going to stick to the subject of strikes and protests. And one of the biggest questions readers are asking is whether they should cancel their upcoming trip to the country or indeed those living in France are wondering whether it's wise to head out to another part of France, given the potential for protests, piles of rubbish or fuel shortages to kind of scupper their trip. It's not an easy question to answer, is it, Emma? But we can give listeners some context to kind of balance out some of the images and videos of perhaps clashes in Paris or piles of rubbish or queues at petrol stations, can we not? Yes, the news headlines in recent days have perhaps not painted a great picture for visitors who might now be under the impression that the entire country is either buried in rotting rubbish or on fire or both. Obviously, that is not exactly the case. But when you're sort of deciding on whether or not to cancel a trip, I think you really need to look at two things, and they are where you want to go and what you want to do. So the disruption that we're seeing is really quite different in different parts of France. So if we're talking about protests or street violence, this is quite heavily concentrated in the big cities, especially Paris. So if you're planning a trip to the countryside, the seaside or the coast, then that's not really something that you need to worry about. Likewise, if you're looking at pictures of the waste collector strikes with rubbish piled high on the streets. That's mostly in Paris. There have been some strikes in other towns, but it's really only Paris that has these big piles of rubbish on the streets. And even then, that's only in certain arrondissements of the city. And then the next thing you need to look at is what you want to do. So strikes generally affect public services. So we're talking about trains, city public transports, flights, sometimes tourist sites like the Eiffel Tower. If you don't want to do any of those things, then strike probably won't affect you all that much. One thing to keep an eye on, though, if you're planning to drive is fuel supplies, because we are starting to see some shortages of petrol and diesel because of blockades at the oil refineries. Yeah, I guess we should say at the time of recording, things could still change quickly in France in terms of protests or fuel supplies. But on that subject of fuel supplies, Emma, do we have any info on which parts of the country are most affected? I read about a driver in Marseille who really struggled to get any kind of petrol this morning. He said he went around about 15 different petrol stations. That's not the case everywhere, is it? Yeah, again, this is one of those things where it really does vary quite a lot depending on where you are. For the fuel shortages, they're definitely worst in the south and the southeast of the country. So down in bouche de rhone which is where Marseille is, around 10% of service stations are reporting shortages and some areas have also 
also put in a 30 litre limit for drivers filling up to try and avoid panic buying. And again, this is mostly in the south of the country, although Pays de la Loire in the west has also seen some shortages. But this situation really can change quite quickly. So I think the best thing to do is check out the government map, which is known as Prix de Carberon, which is updated in real time for prices and for shortages. And we've put a link to that on the local France website. Okay, and just returning to Paris, the most visited city in the world. What about those who are thinking of coming to Paris right now? Well, we're recording this podcast in Paris right now, and obviously we're perfectly fine. Most of the city is carrying on its uh, its day-to-day life as normal. If we're talking rubbish here, the government has used its strike-breaking powers to force the waste collectors back to work. So collections are happening again, but there's an estimated 9,000 tonnes of trash piled up on the streets, and they reckon it'll take up to two weeks to clear everything. So if you're coming in the next two weeks, yeah, you probably will see some rubbish. In terms of street protests, these are happening, they're ongoing. They're generally pretty small, though, and they're only affecting quite a small part of the city, but they are dramatic, so they tend to be quite heavily photographed and reported on. If you find yourself in an area where protests are happening, there really isn't much danger to passers-by from protesters. I think the worst thing that's likely to happen if you're unlucky is that you might accidentally breathe in tear gas because police, their favourite crowd control tactic is to spray tear gas around and they're not always super precise about where they're spraying it. This is pretty horrible. But if you stay away from protest areas, then you should be fine. Yeah, Emma, I was out Tuesday night uh, around Place de la Republic where the protest was taking place. Kind of as soon as I left my flat, the whole air kind of smelt of tear gas. But as I went down to Place de la Republic, I was surprised by how many bars and restaurants were full within about, you know, 200 metres of where the kind of main clashes were taking place. The famous restaurant La Marine, kind of by Canal Saint-Martin, people were out on the terrace and they were just kind of covering their mouths with their scarves and then lowering it to sip their wine and then back up, you know, for the tear gas. But it really was quite a contrast between, you know, the kind of small protest and clashes in Place the Republic, which was quite, you know, you did want to steer clear of it, but not far away, it was life as normal. Yeah, exactly. I've seen a clip circulating on social media, actually, of people eating in a restaurant, just enjoying themselves and outside you can see things are on fire. But again, if you look closely at these clips, especially of things burning, it's usually just like one wheelie bin on fire. And if you look at the sort of wide angle, then sort of around that, people are just going about their daily business. I mean, the media obviously naturally choose the most dramatic images to illustrate a story, but it's not fair to say that the whole city is burning or anything like that. No, indeed. I did pass a burning wheelie bin last night, actually, far from Republic. <laughs> it was just burning on its own and everyone was walking past it. You know, no one really taking any notice of it. Then the fire brigade came and put it out. So it didn't last long. But as I said previously, things could change. So it's always worth keeping an eye on our website for the latest news around strikes, protests and fuel shortages. Thanks, Emma. Now, the organisation Internations, which describes itself as the world's biggest expat community, has published a new ranking of the best and worst places to get started abroad. Now, the results, which are based on the responses of some 12,000 foreign residents, make for interesting reading. While Bahrain, United Arab Emirates and Singapore made the top three, no country in Europe actually made the top ten, and France was placed in the bottom ten for the hardest countries for new arrivals to get set up in. Although we're not quite as bad as Germany, as Jen, you will explain now what is this all about? Yeah, so basically this survey looked at different parts of life when moving to a new country. So how easy is it to deal with administration, language, housing, and digital life. So meaning internet access and paying by card. And ultimately, France came in 44th place out of 52 countries. Uh, it ranked better than Italy, which came in 48th place, and Germany, which came in last place at 52. But it was well behind other European countries like Norway, which was 15th, the Netherlands, which was 25th, and Sweden, which was 26th. 
Overall, the survey found that administrative processes and language were the most difficult parts of setting up life in France for foreigners. On the subject of admin, we all know France is famous for its complicated admin and form filling and needing to provide loads of proof for anything, any administrative task. What did respondents say about French admin, Jen? Well, so France ranked in the bottom 10 again when it came to admin. And personally, I, like, like you just said, I don't think it's super surprising for anyone that spent time here. More than half of the people in the internation survey, so 55%, said that it is not easy to deal with local authorities, uh, which is quite a bit higher than the global average of 39%. And then about a third of respondents said that it was hard to open a local bank account specifically. And we've had several readers of the local mention this challenge as well. I personally experienced it when I first moved to France. There's this awful catch-22 of being asked for a proof of address in order to open the bank account, while on the other hand, you're meeting landlords and they're telling you that they won't rent to you until you have a bank account. So it's a bit of a challenge. And that's uh, that's something that a lot of people signaled as well. So we've got a great guide about opening bank accounts on our website, thelocal.fr. But Jen, we've spoken to a lot of our readers in the past on this subject of French admin. Tell us what they've had to say. So in 2021, we ran a survey with our readers and a lot of people mentioned challenging aspects about living in France and most of them focused on admin. One reader referred to French admin as a quote, pure nightmare. And others like Pavan Pouli advised that for any admin administrative assistance, it takes a lot of time to get done. But readers of The Local have also had a lot of helpful advice for those who are just moving to the country. So in a recent survey that we ran on applying for and renewing visas and residency permits, one respondent advised everyone to bring more paperwork than you think you need and don't expect anything to make sense. (laughs) Uh, So one of my French friends actually always tells me this funny anecdote about her multicultural family. And whenever they had admin appointments growing up, they would drive so that they could pack along the giant file cabinet with all of their possible papers that they might be asked for. And I'm honestly not sure that that was an exaggeration. But when we talk to readers about their top tips for life in France, many of them just mention that you should be polite to admin workers, you know, say bonjour, say merci, you know, all of the politesse things that go a long way. And some had more practical advice, like one reader, Kirsten Hallert, said that it is absolutely necessary to have a French-speaking friend who's not afraid to deal with bureaucracy endlessly. So that's a good tip. Uh, Bring along a, a person that might be more confident in the language than you if you're a little bit worried about that upcoming appointment. Mm. Now, it sounds obviously as though it's just foreign residents who are always complaining about French admin, but the French do have their own complaints, we have to say, and French governments have actually, you know, made an effort to make things simpler when it comes to administration, including current President Emmanuel Macron. In 2017, his government officially introduced the right to make a mistake on admin forms such as tax declarations so that people wouldn't automatically be punished. And the government also made a pledge to get everything on line by 2022. A French newspaper at the time described the move as Christmas come early and almost a revolution for French citizens. Jen, things have got better in recent years, haven't they? Yeah, honestly, I think I've even noticed a change in the last four years that I've been living in France. For example, I struggled so much with building my first dossier when I got a French apartment. And now there's a tool called Dossier Facile, and it allows you to upload all your house hunting documents onto one single site. And then you can even have them checked and verified, which gives you a link that you can give to landlords and agencies that basically shows you're serious and that you've actually you've had your stuff checked over and it makes the process quite a bit simpler and then there are more government websites like démarche simplifiée that are meant to put several bureaucratic processes online onto one portal and speed them up supposedly by 50%. We've got a great article about it on our site. But Ben, I think you have had some positive experiences with Amélie, right? Yeah, I think Amélie's one of the best examples, actually. I don't think it was really set up when I first came to France, but it kind of links your carte vitale and the assurance maladie, the state health insurance system, to your mutual 
well and it makes going to the doctor or kind of any health specialist much more straightforward in terms of getting your repayments paid back to you from your health costs. But Jen, you mentioned language, always a big hurdle to getting started in France. What about language? So the survey found that 60% of people find it difficult to live in France without speaking the local language, which is almost double the global average of 32%. And I think everyone deserves a pat on the back, though, because the survey actually also found that the vast majority of foreigners living in France speak French fairly or very well. So 72%, that's a lot. But many reported that they struggle to learn it, which I think we can all empathize with. Mm, And we also have a great list of free or affordable language learning options on our website as well. But Jen, the locals readers have also had things to say about the struggles of learning French in the past. What about this? Yeah, readers of The Local have also found language barriers to be one of the most challenging aspects of life in France. In The Local's 2021 survey that I was mentioning earlier, one respondent said, of course, every foreigner is in the process of learning French, but it's very discouraging when French people are laughing at you when you try your best to speak French. I have had that experience before, so I can empathize with that reader. Um, We had another reader, Todd Foreman, who said, I'm a fluent French speaker, so I love that aspect of being here. On the other hand, if I didn't speak French, I think many aspects of daily life would simply be too challenging. Ultimately, the level of which you need to speak French in France depends on where you are and who you're talking to. English levels definitely vary by region and, you know, whether or not you're in an urban or a rural area. And of course, the age of the person that you're talking to as well. Indeed. Now, Jen, was there anything positive in this survey? It sounds like France is a really difficult place to move to. It obviously isn't. It has its challenges. But what are some of the positive things that respondents to the survey pointed out? Yeah, the survey did have a have a positive note. So France is notably improving in the digital life category. And the country actually came in 24th place globally for this. So the survey found, quote, around 9 in 10 expats rate the cashless payment options positively. So 89% versus the average of 84% globally. And agree that they have unrestricted access to online services such as social media. That was 90% of people that took the survey. This stacks up with the figures that the French government has put out. In 2013, actually, the French government launched a 20 billion euro plan to make sure that all households and businesses across the country would get access access to very high-speed broadband, and that goal was pretty much achieved. By the end of 2021, 99% of households and businesses had been equipped with it. Emma, France has got quite modern in recent years, hasn't it? It really has, yeah. I mean, when I first moved in 2011, like, almost nothing was online. You had to just, like, go or talk to people on the phone, which is really hard when you don't speak the language. Doing stuff online is uh, is a more simple, more easy process, and it's easier if you find the language difficult. You can take your time, you can read stuff. One thing I would say, though, is I would advise people not to turn on the automatic translate function on government websites. French government websites seem to do a lot of bugging or glitching when you have the translation thing turned on. Mm. So I would say keep it in French and then obviously you can just have another window open with the translation thing, copy and paste in any things that you don't Mm. understand, but try to keep the websites in French. They they don't like it when you try and translate them. Mm, Interesting tip. Thanks, Jen, and thanks, Emma. Now it's time for our reader question. Emma, this one's on you, because I know this is a subject very close to you, that you have good information on this week. It's about becoming a volunteer for the Paris 2024 Olympics and Paralympics. Is it possible? Can I become a volunteer? Tell us more. Yes, you absolutely can. I was up at the Olympics HQ on Tuesday for a briefing about this. Registration is now open to become a volunteer for the Olympic or Paralympic Games. The organisers need 45,000 volunteers for both games. Most of the volunteers are needed in Paris and the surrounding area, but they also need 8,000 
thousand for the eight other host cities, which are Bordeaux, Nantes, Marseille, Nice, Lille, Lyon, Saint Etienne, and Châteauroux. So they're very keen for this to be an inclusive games as well. And so they've also set an informal target of having at least three thousand disabled volunteers. And in very good news for foreigners, you don't need to be able to speak French. Volunteers must speak either French or English or both. And obviously, any other languages that you have will be an advantage when it comes to helping foreign visitors during the games. And there are going to be quite a lot of these. We think that there are going to be about ten million visitors coming to Paris during the six-week games period. Wow, forty-five thousand volunteers is a huge number. Let me just fire some questions at you. Do you need to be a French resident? No, no. The uh, volunteering process is open to everyone around the world. Although you do, if you don't live in France, you do need to organise and pay for your own transport and accommodation while you're here. If you're from a non-EU country, it's also your responsibility to organise any visas that you need to visit France during the games period. Those who benefit from the 90-day rule, so Americans, Brits, Australians, etc., they can use their 90-day allowance to visit for the games. Anyone else can enter on a tourist visa, since this will be a short stay and your work is unpaid, so you don't need a working visa for this. Right, OK. And you did mention that you don't actually need to speak French. Nope. The two official languages of the Olympics are English and French, so you need to be able to speak one of those to a good standard. Other languages are an advantage, and when you sign up, uh, you will be asked what language you speak and if you've indicated that you speak other languages you may be asked to take part in either an interview or a short test just to check that your language skills are what you say they are but that comes a bit later on in the process I see and what about can I just do it for a day no no you need to be available for a minimum of 10 days during either the Olympic or the Paralympic period or both and depending on the role that you're assigned you may also need to take part in some pre-games training okay what about the question of tickets we know it's been hard for people to get tickets does becoming a volunteer increase my chances of getting a ticket? No, you do this for the love of the Games and to be, as the organisers put it, at the heart of the greatest sporting event on the planet. Some people have speculated that signing up to be a volunteer might give you an advantage in later stages at the draw, but I have to say the organisers were not being drawn to that at this briefing I went to on Tuesday. Right, okay, and I don't know, any chance on taking part in an event? Can I become a wrestler? Ben, the Olympics and the Paralympics are serious sporting events people train their entire lives for. This is not just a chance for you to piss about. But if you do want to get involved, you can take part in the Marathon Poitou, the marathon for everyone. This is basically an event that they're running along the Olympics marathon track. So you get a chance to run along the same course as the Olympic athletes, although not at the same time. Right, my only option is to run a blooming marathon. You like running marathons. This this will be fun for you. No, in the past. Right, okay. Do we have an article on our website about this, Emma? I believe we do. Of course we do. It's got lots of details. It's on the local France right now. Fantastic. Thanks for that great info on becoming a volunteer at the Paris 2024 Olympics. Sign up now. As always on Talking France, we like to end with some advice or life hacks for people living in the country. This week, we focused on how not to make French people feel awkward. This is partly due to the fact that an article on our website is being very well read at the moment, which features all these ways that foreigners can make French people feel awkward. Guys, I've been here for 12 years. The list is long in terms of the things that I've done to, you know, mistakenly offend French people. It could in, be. in all fairness, you've also mistakenly offended lots of other nationalities during that's that time. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I've offended pretty much everyone. But when it comes to French people, pronunciation, you know, mixing the words, the pronunciation for coup, when, when I try and tell my mother-in-law I've got a bad neck and I ended up saying malo which is a French slang for a part of the male body. I think drinking too much. I've offended people by getting a bit too drunk in the past. French tend to not drink to the same excess levels as maybe Brits do. Dancing. I've been told my dancing offends people at French weddings. Yeah, your dancing offends me too. Yeah. Food faux pas. 
Like, the list is endless for that. But I think the one that maybe gets me into too much trouble is criticising France. I think you have to go easy on it. So you can be, a, you know, in, in a conversation with loads of French people and they're all going mad about France and criticising France, but as soon as you join in, they suddenly get shocked, you know, as a foreigner criticising France. So I would just suggest maybe listening. If you're in a conversation with French people and they're having to go at the country, just be careful how you get involved. Don't go too much. They'll take it as a kind of the Anglo-Saxons, you know, having to go at the French. But Jen, you picked one out for us. Yeah, actually, before I get into it, I also got in trouble. I got a speeding ticket driving in France recently, and I was complaining about the French highway setup, and I was like, it's so much better in the U.S., and my French partner was was not happy with me complaining about France too much. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like family, isn't it? You know, you can slag off your own family, but as soon as anyone else starts criticising them, then it's fighting talk. So oh, I yeah. think it's kind of the, yeah, the same for France. Good analogy. Maybe, maybe if you get citizenship and become French, then you're allowed to criticise Then I'll be allowed France. to do it. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. So my faux pas, or my, my, the thing that I do that embarrasses um, or makes French people feel awkward is just the fact that I talk too loudly. I'll own up to it. I'm an American. Like, when I get on the metro, sometimes I don't realize that my voice carries. This is something that listeners of the podcast have written to me about, Jen. Oh, God, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only joking. Carry on. I've been told off for talking too loudly. Uh, But when I first moved, it was a real problem. I think I've gotten better about it now. But French people just, they tend to kind of speak in quieter tones, especially for private conversations in public. And using like your big voice when you're sitting at a crowded bistro might make people feel a bit uncomfortable. I think I've gotten better about it over the years. At my birthday party this year, I actually found myself cringing when my American friends were speaking too loudly so who knows maybe we uh maybe we assimilate more than mm, we realize definitely emma i'm sure you've offended a few people in your time here uh, yes absolutely but the thing i do that confuses french people more than anything is just saying sorry all the time I, i'm british i can't help it it's what we do but this sort of habit of apologizing doesn't really translate into french so much so like in the uk it would be perfectly normal to start a conversation with a shop assistant by sort of saying excuse me but like in france if you start something with excusez moi that is that is not okay you start with bonjour apologizing for random stuff. But also I've noticed that um, désolé, the French for sorry, is not really used as casually as we use it in English. I think désolé is for like when you've genuinely done something that you seriously need to apologise for. Like if you've just bumped into somebody on the metro, then just a pardon will be absolutely fine for that. Interesting. That's some really good advice there. And listeners, we're always happy to hear from you guys out there. If you've accidentally offended French people, get in touch with us at news at the local.fr. We love to hear your stories. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Thanks to you all for listening and thanks to those of you who have left positive reviews on the websites and platforms where you listen to this podcast. It really helps spread the word about Talking France. We'll be back next week.